Can I just say that the more I've been doing this podcast, the more excited I am to do it every week. Hearing from you guys about what's important to you, what you want to know more about has been so helpful in informing what kind of show this is going to be. Like, I have a much clearer idea of where I want to go with this than when I started, which that was just a few weeks ago. It was like six weeks ago. And already here we are feeling like it's becoming a more developed show with without a proper theme song. But that's okay. We are making a lot of progress and I'm talking to more and more people that I'm really excited to have on as guests. So later in this episode, my guest is an incredible YouTuber that was pointed out to me by you guys on Twitter. His name is Brandon Havard and he's doing extremely cinematic tech reviews. I think people direct me towards him because like we're both kind of in the same genre of um, not just talking to camera, but trying to elevate the genre. And I really respect what he's doing. It looks amazing. And I want to use this as an opportunity to talk to you guys about what makes videos cinematic and what you can do at, at a very basic level to elevate your videos to a more exciting place where they feel like a movie, even if it's just about something as simple as a cell phone. So the place I want to start from is assuming that you already basically know how to edit a video. A podcast is a terrible place to learn the basics of Final Cut Pro or Premiere Pro or iMovie or any of that. Get onto YouTube if you are not already editing. But I really want to talk to people that already know how to put a series of clips in a sequence and turn that into something a little bit more watchable. And let's talk about how to make that much more enjoyable for the viewer and how to bring it to a place where you feel more proud of the work that you're doing. So I'll start with some of the things that I see most commonly done poorly on YouTube, where I think people could easily be improving, putting the same amount of effort in, but having that effort go further. So one is just what you shoot as B-roll. We all start off by just shooting what you'd call A-roll. And if you don't know this terminology, the idea of A-roll is like the, the primary subject. So if you've got a person talking throughout the video, it's the video of the person talking. Usually it's just a headshot, kind of like a news anchor sort of thing. And that's also the source of the audio, like of all the dialogue. Then you've got B-roll that is placed on top of that. That's um, like supplementary footage showing the product or showing what you're talking about so that you don't just have to stare at my stupid face the whole time. I think no matter what the topic is that you're doing a video about, when you get started, you're probably not using enough B-roll. Like, You might feel like you have shot a lot of additional footage and be mixing it in, but just put more in, like constantly be showing the thing that you're talking about, because generally people aren't super interested in seeing your face. I mean, there's, there's certainly exceptions like the news is a good exception or seeing, uh, channels like Philip DeFranco, where he's just mostly talking and expressing his opinion. And the point of it is the dialogue primarily. I mean, uh, similar to like, if this podcast was a visual thing, I probably wouldn't have images going over it the whole time. It'd be like, you could look at my face occasionally if you wanted to, but it's not the same kind of engagement as say a a traditional YouTube video. And even if we look at Philip Franco's channel, and if you're not familiar with it, you should go check it out. It's sort of a commentary on the news. He, He does a really great job and he does make sure to always put in imagery of what he's talking about over top of the dialogue. It's not just him sitting in front of his couch talking. And if it was, I think a lot less people would stay engaged. We have really short attention spans and we don't like to see the same thing for a long time. When I was first starting to make videos, a uh, exercise that I would do that I, I think paid off quite a lot is when I was watching movies, especially movies I wasn't that into, like I, I felt like I could be distracted or I need to keep my mind 
busy is that I would start to count the time that each shot was on screen. Uh, now that I think about it, I probably should have done this to good movies instead of bad. Maybe I need to put some more homework in. But the point is, is that as a, a shot begins, I just start counting my head like one, two, three. And you'll quickly realize most shots, even in a, like a comedy or a, you know, not just in action movies, you're going to find that most shots are on screen from like two to maybe five seconds. Like five seconds is a pretty long shot. Ten seconds is an enormously long shot. So when I look at Instagram stories as being 15 seconds long, that's too long. I, I mean, I know it's supposed to be a really quick type of engagement. Like it's, it's a medium where you're supposed to just quickly say a few things and post it without thinking too hard about it. But I actually think that like the time of a Vine video, rest in peace, was a little more appropriate to people's attention spans. Like just give me a few seconds. And with just a little bit of effort, a lot can be communicated in that time. And I think that people appreciate that density of information. It's, I, I know it's a product of our culture that we have short attention spans and Maybe that is a problem, like that's kind of a different discussion if it's a problem. But from my perspective, I'm, I'm just trying to talk to you about how to succeed in the landscape of video as it is. And 15 seconds is way too long. So if you can start aiming to get things down to two, three, four seconds, sometimes one second is appropriate. Um, I, I think you're going to find that people will stick with your videos a little bit longer and you can get as much, if not more, information into that same amount of time. And a more specific tip is that you can't just have dozens of one-second clips one after the other. It becomes kind of nauseating if it just keeps moving that fast over and over and over. People um, just get frustrated and will we'll move on. But if you want to put a denser grouping of imagery in there, you can have little moments where a whole bunch of shots like kind of flash on screen quickly. So let's say each cut is 0.5 of a second or one second, put, uh, you know, five of those in a row. So it's just bang, 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 and then follow up with a longer clip, like a three, five, maybe 10 second clip or, or maybe a full clip of, of you speaking. As long as you break up those really fast moments and the long moments and put some separation in between, people will be more forgiving both of the fast and the long clips. Like the more diversity you have of clip length, the, the more effective it's going to be. Um, that's not always the case. Some things are just consistently slower or faster depending on the energy that you want to put into the video. But a general rule of thumb that will just work well on average is this quick, slow, quick, slow approach, kind of like 90s music, quiet, loud. And what next? Honestly, there's a million different directions I could go with this, and I didn't make a list of notes first. But uh, just something else that comes to mind is with lighting. It may seem obvious to just go into the, the, the brightest light you possibly can, or if your subject, um, say it's a person, is looking kind of dark, then you raise the exposure or turn on another light. Here's another approach. Have the light source coming from slightly off axis. If you watch dramas um, or action movies, um, anything except for comedies, really, you're going to find that most shots are lit quite a bit from the back and the, the kind of the front angle of the actors are actually usually pretty dark. This isn't appropriate for everything, uh, especially not if it's supposed to be lighthearted and supposed to be casual and fun. But if you want to give something a little bit more drama, let the light come from another angle and, and don't entirely 
fill it in every time. And with your exposure, try to set it so that the highlights are preserved. Don't let them blow out. Uh, don't try to raise all the dark parts all the time. Like sometimes let the darks be dark and let the highlights be on the back side of the image. Maybe this is a little advanced technique, but it, it totally works. And as you look around the internet for tutorials about it, you'll find that it's actually pretty common. And maybe a more simple way of describing that is just to try to balance the light between your subject and background, whether that means that they are both dark or they're both bright, that they are similar. This is where having an audio-only podcast makes it a little harder to demonstrate, but if you can just imagine a person standing in the shadow of a building, the shadow is just falling on the person, but behind them, it's fully lit. It's, uh, say, an open field, and you can see the sky, and you can see trees that are a mile away, and the shadow of the building only extends just enough to cover the person. So they are shaded, everything else is not shaded. This creates some huge problems, and is more or less guaranteed to be pretty ugly lighting. Uh, the, the issue is that either your subject is going to be really dark, or if you expose for the subject, then the background is going to be wildly blown out. You're much better off to have the person be in the light. And even if it's not the most flattering light, that more or less, there's a similar amount hitting the person and hitting the background, you're going to be way better off. Or conversely, if you wanted to go with the more shaded look in this situation, you would turn the camera around so that the background where there is plenty of other shade is behind the person and they are still shaded. This is going to work a, a hell of a lot better. And um, there, there are certain times that it can work all, all right to have a blown out background, especially if there's just wind, if you're shooting indoors and there's windows in the background and the windows are blown out. Sometimes that's the only appropriate way for the image to look. It, it just kind of has to be blown out to seem right. If you were to crank up the lights indoors to the point where it's the same as the outside, that can start to look artificial. So um, yeah, generally try to balance it. In, in certain cases, you don't have to. But again, I, mean, I think what the most helpful thing is just to watch movies more carefully and, and also you know look at photography, look at photography with really controlled lighting. But even more so, I actually think there's more to learn from movies because a lot of the time photography is done with smaller crew and less resources. And um, that doesn't mean that photography is lesser or that the images aren't, aren't as good as, as movie images. But in movies, you can always remember that every single detail you're seeing was incredibly intentional. There are very few accidents happening on the screen. So all of that lighting uh, was carefully considered and you can probably consider what they did and, and come up with some ideas on how to apply it to what you're doing yourself. And I can go on and on and I'll, I'll try to include more tips in future episodes, but just one more for today. And that's when you have camera motion, if the camera's moving through the scene, and this is it's like filmmaking 101. It's, it's great to go and pick up, honestly, just like a beginner filmmaker book and get to know some of these basic rules. Um, but the motivation of camera movement is so important. And it's especially hard for people to grasp. Uh, I think when you're moving from a photography background, if you're just used to still images, the idea of movement in your image can be a little bit foreign and, and hard to uh, really apply and, and understand what is appropriate and, and start to see what looks good. Again, watch your real movies to to get a checklist of good and bad shots. I mean, well, the bad shots won't be there, just good shots. Um, but like a good example that I, I often see in terrible video is if you've got your camera sitting on a tripod with a head that is able to turn. So it can look left and right or up and down. 
they will be shooting just scenery. Say it's a beautiful lake and gradually pan across the lake, right? You want to, sh- you want to show everything. So you start on the left and you slowly move to the right, looking across this beautiful landscape. And little do you know, you just created a garbage shot that instantly looks cheap and, and nobody wants to watch. And, and I'm sorry, cause you know, you've probably spent a lot on this tripod and you carried it all the way out here, but you'd be so much better off just holding that shot still unless you have a person in that shot or a bird flying through that shot or anything happening in the shot that gives you an excuse to move from one side of the frame to the other. If you don't have that movement, if you don't have that motivation to have the camera move, then just have separate shots. Have one shot of the left side of the lake, another shot of the right side of the lake, and especially don't shoot those two from the same place. Go walk five minutes away and and shoot something else and cut them together. And that's how you're going to show more of the lake in a, a beautiful way. But honestly, if you just stand there and keep moving the camera around, it's not great. There are some sort of stylistic things you can do that you can just be, um, you know, beautiful, like slider shots. Uh, imagine if you put something in the foreground, uh, and this is actually a bonus tip included, is with sliders, having something in the foreground is what gives you the impression of a lot of movement, because usually these things are only like two feet long. They're not often really big. So you need to see the difference in movement between something close to the camera and far from the camera. So you've got some, say, blades of grass that are a few inches away from the camera, and then you've got mountains in the background. Um, and you, you can move left or right and create a, you know, just kind of a beautiful shot, may not be motivated, and you're probably going to get away with it a few times if it's really smooth and it's just beautiful. That can that can be allowed, but you can't use it that many times. Like if it's two or three times in a video, people are going to get sick of it. So again, to simplify this as much as possible, let your camera follow whatever is happening in the shot and try not to move it unnecessarily more than that, unless there's a reason. Um, other examples of, of motivation can be uh, that there just is movement. Like if, if you're pointing the camera out the front of a car window and you're moving forward, well, okay, you're communicating that, okay, the intention is we are moving forward. Um, that That is a motivation, that there's a reason for it. And like the word motivation, I feel like you can get caught up in it, in it feeling kind of arty. Like a, a lot of this terminology, I get frustrated hearing it for the first time because I don't like the... I don't want it to be formalized. I don't want it to feel like you need to know a set of rules to be a filmmaker, but um, just, you know, try to find a way to describe it to yourself that lets you just like internalize that meaning. And so motivation isn't uh, like an abstract concept that the camera has feelings and it cries at night. It just means that like, there's, there's a reason you're, you're doing all these things for a reason that you've thought of on purpose. And now you're, you're going to execute it. So shoot with intention, do everything on purpose. That that's, that's all I got for today. A few little notes and updates on uh, podcasting. First, this show's been growing faster than I could have hoped because you guys are awesome And it's only because you guys tell each other about the show. Like podcasts don't really spread very much through SEO or through typical organic online ways. They grow through people. So um, honestly, what would be incredibly helpful is if you know anybody that could gain anything from this, just tell them about it, tweet about it, post on Facebook, or you can just write a review in iTunes. All this stuff helps a lot. 
it's a brand new show, still trying to get the word out there, but I'm really glad you guys are here. And then uh, another follow-up on creating podcasts. So, uh, you know, if you go back to episode five with Ray Ortega, the podcast helper, we were talking about microphones and the best things to use. So right now, the, this whole beginning, you've been hearing me through my Heil PR40, which is my fancy mic that I, I love and I covet. But um, to, just to give you some ideas of what things sound like, uh, this is me in my studio. The last episode, the interview was done on a ATR 2100, which is that a very affordable mic that we were talking about. I, I got one from BNH while we were in the US. They're kind of hard to get in Canada, which is frustrating, but it's incredibly affordable and it can sound very good. I did realize some limitations of it that you need to be very close to the mic to get an appropriate volume. It's a pretty quiet mic and uh, it didn't actually come with a pop filter of any kind. So I was actually talking further than I should from the mic, but you know, I, I think it worked out pretty well. Also, that mic was being used in episode six with Chris Nichols. And, you know, I think it was okay there. That was just, again, these are in like two different hotel rooms, so not a very controlled situation. This is relatively more controlled right now. But um, in the interview coming up, I was using, again, the ATR 2100, and something just kind of went wrong with it. You'll hear it's sort of overdriven, like barely distorted. I have no idea what was going on. This uh, didn't happen. I did another interview right after that sounded totally fine. So no idea what the problem was. I don't think it's representative of the mic in general. I just should have been testing it a little more, I guess, right ahead of time. It's funny because there is a mon like headphone monitors that come out of the bottom, but it's not loud enough to really hear yourself. You can hear the other person very well. But you can't turn up your mic very much. So I couldn't really have caught it through monitoring. Whereas here, when I'm at home at my studio, I've got a audio interface that has a volume input on my headphones. So I turn myself up a lot louder to know what's going on. And just for fun, let's do a little experiment. I'm talking into the Heil PR40 right now from about six inches away, running through a DBX286S and into a Scarlett 6i6 audio interface. So all this stuff together, like the mic is like 500 bucks, the preamp is like 250 and the audio interface is like 300. So, you know, it's like a thousand dollars of equipment here. Sounds like this. Now let's switch over. And now you are hearing me through the ATR2100 with a cheap little pop screen on it. This whole thing was 70 US dollars. So I don't know, Canadian, maybe it's like a hundred bucks. Um, and this is what it sounds like. Tell me what you think. I, I haven't listened to the examples yet. Let me, let me pause and listen to it. And now we're back to the Heil. And you know what? I, I can definitely hear the difference with good headphones on. Um, I, I, I don't regret having a beautiful microphone, uh, but you, you do need the headphones to hear it. Now back to the ATR2100. It, it sounds very good. Um, there's a little bit lack of clarity. Uh, the bass isn't as rich. I mean, I'm not good with the language of, of audio, but you know what? In AirPods, EarPods coming out of a iPhone speaker, um, there's not a, a significant difference. So um, I do really like both of these microphones, but I, I want to explain really quickly why you would choose this instead of something like the Blue Yeti, which a lot of people use. A dynamic microphone, which both of these are, is going to be so much better at rejecting all of the sound around you. So you have to be a bit closer to it. It's, it doesn't pick up as much sound, but that's good because you don't hear the echo of the room as much or other people in the room or in the room next door or anything else going on. It is all a, a lot quieter 
than with uh, a condenser microphone, which is what the Blue Yeti is. And uh, that it, that's just a mic everybody buys. And it sounds fine. I hear people on podcasts with it and you can get by, but you're going to have an easier time sounding good out of a dynamic microphone. Now, that's enough for me. Let's go and talk to Brandon Havard, who, again, amazingly talented cinematographer doing tech videos on YouTube. Go to his channel before you listen to the interview, because you should know why I'm so excited to talk to him. And uh, yeah, listen up. This is going to be a good one. So I've got Brandon on the line. I, um, I'm really excited to talk to you. I feel like Same here. a lot of people on uh, Twitter felt like we should chat. <laughs> as, <laughs> as I started posting more YouTube videos, people kept pointing me in your direction and a few other people that I feel like kind of represent a new visual style that's been going on in YouTube that I think is really exciting of taking what are like traditionally visually boring videos and making them beautiful and cinematic. So how did you get into this? How long you've been doing YouTube and what were you doing before that? Well, I've been doing YouTube for about a year and a half. And uh, before that, I was strictly freelance when it came to video. And I've been sort of around theater all my life. I, I would say the the thing that made me gravitate towards YouTube, especially with bringing um, you know higher production quality to tech reviews, was definitely the theater end because it's that dramatic side that made me want more out of you know a standard tech video, mm-hmm. and uh, that was honestly the thing that that gave me the the, the courage or the urge to uh, reinvent what it means to make a tech review or any type of YouTube video. And how did you end up choosing tech as the the medium? Because you know, <laughs> like for me, from my side, it's that kind of wanted to be a filmmaker, but I don't yeah. have any scripts and I'm like, well, sure, I, sure. I know what I like to talk about. So, yeah. Um, I mean, tech was honestly, th- there really wasn't a thought process behind that. Honestly, I was really encouraged by a bunch of different people in the field. Marquez Brownlee for one, Ash Taylor. So, I mean, th- there's a lot of people that I saw sort of doing really interesting things with the technology space that I wanted to kind of capitalize on. And um, I thought that tech would be sort of an interesting route uh, above like vlogging or any other form of YouTubing, just because it it allows you to focus on a product as Mm -hmm. opposed to like your daily life or anything like that. Right. I I don't know. It was more of a comfort zone for me than anything else. Well, and a a little hack that I I shouldn't let the whole world in on, but it's it's true. (laughs) It's a good secret for YouTube is that people need to be searching for something. You know, they're not searching for the Brandon and Tyler show exactly. And they've never heard of us yet. Right. So it's hard to get off the ground with a vlog when you're unknown, if you don't have a reputation from somewhere else, exactly. Choosing a genre, choosing a product, you know, it doesn't, obviously it doesn't have to be tech. Same with beauty on, on the women's side. Sure. By choosing to make your channel about that gives you a launch pad. So I agree. Yeah. And how do you make your movies as well? You've got a, a red something. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's a Red Scarlet W. and um, Beautiful. It is a great camera. And um, I sort of decided upon going that route strictly because of freelance, just because, you know, it's a lot of running and gunning and having the flexibility shooting raw. That's a, a great perk, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're in less than useful environments with lighting and, and whatever. So having that flexibility in post is really uh, useful. 
my goal in this episode is that like, I want normal people to be able to do a way better job. And so like, I think I, I'm mm-hmm. going to assume we'd both agree that you don't need that kind of camera absolutely to do what we're talking about. Like it is nice and it does take you further. I think some people maybe overemphasize how little gear matters because I agree. It, it makes a difference. It makes a really significant difference. Mm-hmm. If you, <laughs> if you don't have the, the really high end gear, there are certain things you, certain looks you can't achieve, Yeah, but it definitely is not what quality is all about. And I think a good reference point is maybe um, comparing say Casey Neistat to Marquez. Yeah. Totally different approaches. And mm-hmm. Casey couldn't do what he does with Marquez's gear. Yeah, no. Like the big heavy rigs and stuff. Like, Agreed. So choosing different pieces of gear opens you up to different things. And if you're going to do something really lightweight, let's say you're just using your cell phone, then take advantage of that and like make it mobile, make it more alive and, st- and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I've, I've realized over the past couple of months, well, ever since I, I got my red is you know the the size of it the um the use of it it actually tends to inhibit you some ways creatively mm-hmm. uh when you don't have you know the smaller say because i was using a canon um EOS 80D beforehand and uh the the size of that allows you to really get creative with angles with different types of movements and you know as much as it's nice to have the red the, the bigger size, the heavier uh, form factor, it, it definitely limits some of that creativity. I think in some ways, yes, it is a nicer image sometimes, but when it comes to YouTube, I think that you're better off having a lesser camera. You pay a price, right? I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I've been going through this personally because I always want to upgrade my gear and <laughs> I'm just thinking about what I'm going to do next. I've been looking at, say, like the... Sony a7R 3 versus mm-hmm. a Canon C200, which are totally different cameras. Like they, Absolutely. It doesn't even make sense to talk about them together, but they would end up causing me to create such different content. You know, I think anybody getting into this needs to consider that, that you can become uh, sort of chained to your gear in a lot of ways, you know? <laughs> it even goes like that with gimbals. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I need moving gimbal shots Every shot has to be smooth motion and stuff. But once you put a camera on a gimbal, you are, oh, it can be really restrictive as well. Like now you can't I agree. mount a mic on top of it. And now you mm-hmm. can't, it's harder to just hold a st- like a steady shot. And yeah, there's kind of always trade-offs as you scale up. Like none of the increased quality in a uh, gear quality, none of that comes for free. Yeah. But let's talk about some of the stuff that you can just do for free. Cause I mean, so much of it, is maybe I think the biggest thing that average YouTubers I see could improve is what I'd call pacing. Mm -hmm. And that's not just editing or like editing faster or editing slower or anything like that. It's, it's having a more considered approach to when do you move on to the next shot? When do you move on to the next topic? When do you show B-roll stuff like that? So how do you plan that kind of stuff out ahead of time? Do you have a shot list? Like how do you plan the stuff that's going to be included? You know, one thing that was actually said to me a long time ago was that editing is not so much something you learn, but it's something you feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, when, when you're editing, I use Final Cut Pro and, you know, when I'm in a Final Cut Pro and I'm, I'm stringing different pieces of footage together and I'm playing it back, I feel when a new shot should come. When, right. when my brain says, okay, I'm bored of what I'm seeing right now. I want to see something new. And that's, that's my editing process. That's how right. I pace because I can tell when I'm getting a little tired of a shot. That's generally when someone else would get tired too. So that's my form of pacing. Obviously, the, the video type, the, the music's going to change some of that, or actually a lot of that. But um, yeah, that's, that's my standard approach. Yeah, I find music is a big key to it. That Some people I've talked to don't really um, care about music as much as I do that do video editing. And yeah. I try to emphasize, like, just listen to more music while you edit, even if it doesn't end up and even if there is no music in the edit, it can be so helpful to have something with a steady beat to, to yeah. be cutting to. And I also want to let out a little secret about my last uh, video. Uh, did you happen to see my iPhone 10 video that came out? Of the I did. It's, it's beautiful. So the, in the beginning, there's these 3d computer generated shots. I thought so. Actually, yeah. I'm going to have two secrets come out in this that uh, <laughs> were done by my friend, Chris Dowsett. He was on episode one of this podcast. Gotcha. And he did an amazing job, like such great renders in cinema 4d. Like this is professional software uh, yeah. done by somebody who knows how to use it. So it, it looked great. Two things happened. One, the file I uploaded, I was on my way to the airport and I did not proof things correctly. I, I just didn't look at the final export in the way I should have. I was looking for the content of it, but missed that something had happened to the image quality output. So it is so soft and not <laughs> does not look as good as it should. So anybody listening, make, make, there's a link now in the description to a 4K version of it. Gotcha. Just lesson there, like, uh, you can't proof watch your stuff enough. It, it, anytime I rush, I regret it. I agree. Oh, man. And then the other thing, this is almost just an apology to Chris. He did this render of like, if anybody remembers when the camera starts to swoop around the phone, yeah. we plan to have this dramatic long shot that all in one shot, the camera is moving all the way around the phone and comes back to land on me again. And mm -hmm. that was this idea of like, okay, 60 seconds of me explaining every feature about the phone. And what ended up happening as I watched it is that feeling that you're talking about that I'm like, Chris just spent days on this. Like every frame to, to render at some points was taking two minutes per frame. I believe it. Yeah. So ages. And I cut out like 40 seconds of footage that he had rendered because once I saw it in action, I could just feel I'm like, oh, this doesn't, yeah. this isn't the pacing it should be. It doesn't flow. Yeah. So I'm sorry to Chris, but it's also just a life lesson of like, sometimes you just need to like watch something a dozen times before it can really sink in. No, absolutely. And you understand like what it needs to be. Well, what's funny is, you know, and, and building on that, you know, especially when you're in the editing process, this is actually what happened to me during the iPhone 10 video. We had, uh, we had filmed a large portion of it and I was already starting to, you know, put in a Final Cut Pro, understand what music I wanted to use. And it, it felt... Uh, it felt good, like it, it looked good, but it, it was missing something. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's that's when I sort of conceptualized that that first shot. Yeah, which is great. Well, thank you. Anybody should watch both of our videos before <laughs> continuing <laughs> this, otherwise it won't make any sense. Plug, plug, plug. Yeah, but it's it's funny because everything really gels when you're in the editing process for me, because you you can tell when something isn't quite working and. Uh, I think this sort of plays into the perfectionist inside me is, but it's, it's, it's hard to leave it alone. 
And, uh, you know, you find yourself going back to the tiniest little thing. And if something's missing, you want to fix it. And, uh, that's definitely what the first shot was for me. It was, it was definitely the, um, the need for something more. Well, so that's a downside of our approach. Like how long did the iPhone 10 video (laughs) take for you? I think I was three months late and you were like, you beat me by at least a month. I think it was, it was close. Um, it took me a solid four weeks of shooting and editing yeah. uh, altogether. Really, it's it's the last two or three days before the upload that's really crunch time for me when it comes to the editing process, yeah. uh, because everything really comes together in that three-day period. But everything before then was just conceptualizing, shooting, sort of you know random ideas that come into our heads that were like, okay, maybe we can try that, see what happens. Um, so it's, you know, trial and error process, but it was, it was probably four weeks altogether. Well, and then in the end, you know, when you compare the things that we put out that have, um, you know, maybe it feels a little more like you're in a theater, but comparing it to what say uh, Jonathan Morrison's putting out or MKBHD, Mm -hmm. like they got those out in the first two days, you know, like Mm -hmm. they may have a little more of a, uh, a formula in a good way, like not, not as yeah. a, a negative thing, but like they do it the same way each time. Yeah. Template. So they can be responsive so that the video is there when you expect it. Yeah. Finding this balance, I think is something I'm, I'm going to be looking for is like, okay, how do I be responsive and quick when I need to be? And how do I absolutely take the time when it's worth it? Well, I mean, it's, it's funny too, because, you know, building on that, I, I worked with John for a couple of videos and um, it was really the, the pixel two review that we worked on that, sort of opened my eyes a little bit, but having uh, John be the talking head for the video actually took a whole lot of weight off of my shoulders Mm. because editing on top of someone else is oddly so much easier than editing on top of yourself talking. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And that's something that I sort of, I realized during that process because honestly, the video took probably three days altogether, shooting, editing, upload, and, uh, it was the quickest, uh, most easy process for me, and uh, the video came out really well. Yeah, I thought it was great. That's when I sort of realized, you know, it's so much easier when you're sort of the third person, <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. when when you're adding the clips on top of uh, someone else. It's, it's it was just a funny realization on my part. So, was there anything you could really take away from shooting with him, just like seeing other people's process about how to improve your workflow? Did you have any life lessons from that? It's, I mean, every, everybody's so different when it comes to tech reviews, right? It's like his, his process is um, definitely, it, it gravitates more around the piece of technology, which is what it should be. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I feel like mine is, is definitely a mixture of both the video end and the technology end, because that's, that's sort of, I think, our niche is the fact that we put equal effort into both. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he does a great job at all things, but I think the one thing in his process that I sort of took away from is that his structure is very much shoot the a roll first. So talking head first, get all the information out. And then after that, take the footage that you need and upload and, you know, edit on top of that. And I, I think that's a great approach for me. I am too much of a procrastinator to actually do that, right. but um, that that's his process and it works really well for him. So for sure. And well, he did a really great video recently. I don't, I don't remember the topic. I just remember the shots cause they were beautiful. And it was like, uh, 
I think just a series of things he was into and he had, I think he has a new slider or something. Yeah. And yeah, it's a semi slider. There's some really creative uses of it that I, I didn't see. And for sure, that kind of thing can be really helpful. I mean, so even just as like a general tip, everybody goes and buys a slider and they can, mm-hmm. you probably should. There's, they're really useful, versatile things, but they're great. You know, the first time I did a tech review with one, I got my footage back and I realized like, wait, I can't edit any of these shots next to each other. Cause I'm just like going left and right and forward and back. And like, I'm moving so much. Exactly. That you got seasick after just a couple of the shots. So like, yeah. if you have one really dramatic moving shot, just put a static shot off after it where, you know, a hand is in motion or like you can keep that kind of thing, like really yeah. simple. Well, that's, that's actually an interesting life lesson I sort of thought about recently is, you know, you can tell when someone gets a new toy. Uh, because they oh, tend to overuse sure. that toy a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, that was definitely a recent sort of thought process for me. I, I just bought a jib not too long ago just for overhead shots. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forget what video it was, but I was just trying to do as much overhead as possible. <laughs> and I was getting the editing process, and I was like, this just, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So, you know, it's it's definitely an equal balance when you have a new toy because you have to figure out like what shots are right for that. What, what, what parts are right for that? What helps explain uh, the feature that you're trying to uh, describe and uh, what tool works best for that? I heard uh, Casey Neistat uh, capture a bit of this recently talking about how he distributes the shots that he tries to gather of that. He tries to make sure that a third of them are static shots, like with the camera locked off. And a third of them are like kind of scenery and B-roll to establish where he is and what he's doing. And then a third of them are just are like handheld vlog style to keep like the energy up. And of course, he doesn't stick to that. It just captured this thing that I had been thinking about. Sometimes it feels wrong if I stick to one too much, you know, like if I have too many shaky cam shots or if I have too many just talking to the camera on a tripod. Any of them can get either boring or frustrating yeah. when you stick with it too long. So um, it, it's helpful to plan ahead that you're going to try to get roughly this many of this style, For sure. this many of that style, you know, and you, you don't have to list them all, but just having something like that. Well, I mean, also, and this is something I've been thinking about recently is, you know, with every video that I attack, I, I really want to hone in on a particular theme or style that I'm trying to focus on with the particular product. Uh, so like for iPhone 10, I wanted to go for like a sci-fi theme. And uh, for Pixel 2, I wanted to do just like a, like a darker, but like more modern, just softer theme. And uh, with that, I think you then can decide what tools are right for that particular theme. So, you know, for iPhone 10, I wanted to definitely be more handheld heavy. I wanted to see the shake. I wanted to see the urgency behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, that's where handheld shots come into place versus, you know, a slider, which is definitely more of a structured shot. And I think that that, you know, worked better for like a pixel review rather than the uh, sci-fi driven iPhone review. Right. So, you know, it, it depends on what you're going for. Oh, for sure. And making those decisions ahead of time instead of uh, reg- like sitting there in the edit and being like, wait, what am I missing? I mean, some yeah. of my iPhone 10 shots, you can see that it's just on my desk because I was at the very end of editing. I'm like, damn, I don't really have a shot that fits this. So I just, yeah. you know, no. like pick up my camera and quickly try to fill it in. Sure. And I know if I had, you know, a, bit, a little bit more planning probably could have saved me some time. 
Absolutely. You know, I, I've been there too. It's, it's like you get to the end and it's like, okay, I've used all the really great, you know, glamour shots. What now? Can I get your thoughts on like uh, depth of field? Because I think, you know, bokeh and blur is something that plays into a lot of people's perception of what's cinematic. Do you feel like it's an important part of your visual language? Well, you know, I think, again, it, it depends on what you're shooting. With products, especially if you're, you know, trying to describe... So, like, say you're taking uh, an image of the camera on a phone. I think having a decent amount of depth of field is really an asset. But, you know, if you're shooting someone walking down the street with a phone, you want to see their surroundings. Uh, you don't want to see so much blur that you can't make out what's in the background. It really depends on where you are, what you're shooting, and what you're trying to evoke in the uh, in the viewer's mind. But, you know, I think when we all start out, we... We're the hell out of everything. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> yeah. we think that that's what professionalism looks like when it comes to, you know, video. But especially as I get uh, more and more into uh, themes and more and more into ideas, I want to play with... Um, breaking that down and, and seeing what type of settings in the camera work best for the shot I'm trying to pull off. So, you know, right now, when it, when it comes to, like, gimbal work, I want to shoot as wide open as possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it definitely changes a lot. I think it all comes down to what you're shooting and uh, what you want to achieve with the shot. Yeah, and I think blur can be that same kind of toy that we were just talking about where when you first get, when somebody buys their first 50 millimeter 1.8 lens, um, you know, which I'm sure we all recommend, like, yeah, they're great lenses, but it's really, it's easy to suddenly have everything be extremely shallow depth of field. And that's not always ideal, you know? (laughs) uh, Yeah, well, I mean, general rule of thumb, keep your nose in focus and keep your eyes in focus and keep your ears in focus all at the same time. <laughs> That's a good one. And and like a good way to do that too is uh if you if you want to keep okay this this depends on your situation, but if you want to keep the blur, like you still want the background to be knocked out a bit. Yeah. Um you can put a longer lens on. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a 35 or a 24 millimeter lens, it'll be very mm-hmm. challenging to get any blur in the background. Like you'll have to be stopped down to 2.8 or 1.4 for sure. But if you put a 50 or an 85 or even longer lens on, you can be at F4 or F5.6, yeah. even if it's like a big zoom. And then all of the person, like you will be completely sharp, your whole body and the background will still be knocked out. Trick is you need more space. Yeah, no legit. Um, the one thing that I see a lot of, which I constantly want to scream is, uh, you know, when people are shooting top down, I see people shooting at like 1.8. You have, you know, <laughs> right. those, those fake Ikea plants and like half of it's out of focus. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, shoot at 4.5. Shoot, shoot somewhere in the space that everything is in focus, including your hands. But, you know, again, that, that plays into what you're shooting. You have to decide what you want in focus and what you don't want to focus. As far as lighting goes, I get the impression that you're using, you're using quite a bit of uh, lighting manually lit controlled lighting. Uh, yes. and you know, I kind of want to, I kind of want to give people tips that they can apply without spending too much money. Sure. But like, you know, what's your simplest approach to creating beautiful light for your shots? Don't be afraid of natural light. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> this is definitely something that I, I took advantage of when I was starting is shooting outside because a, the lighting is wonderful. B, the setting can be awesome. 
you just really have to look. You have to find a good location. You have to really think about your framing, and uh, you know it'll all fall into place. So you don't really need professional lighting to start off. Just go outside, play around, try some different stuff. Maybe shoot at night. Try some cool stuff with your lenses. Get a lot of bokeh into uh, into the camera. I think that type of thing will really improve the look of your content dramatically. Yeah, and same with if you're inside, sit by a window. <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah, I think a lot of people could improve their indoor shots by using more natural lighting and and focusing less on. If you just have one softbox, there's a limited number of looks that that can give you for sure that are you know appropriate for for say a talking headshot. Yeah, I find it is much easier to get a beautifully lit shot in, in natural lighting. Like it's, if you're, if you're just starting off, you're more likely to screw it up if you haven't lit a lot of scenes in the past, you know? Well, I think the other thing, um, I've sort of been brainwashed into a lot is, uh, you know, the whole concept of three point lighting and, you Mm -hmm. know, it's great. It's a look, it's wonderful, but don't be put into a box by that. I totally agree. You need to, you know, play around, see what looks really good. Because also, you know, everybody wants to achieve that. Nobody's doing something different. Yep. And, uh, you know, I see Ash Taylor doing that a lot, which is something that I really respect, is the fact that he plays around with lighting when it comes to his A-roll. And uh, personally, I think he has the best A-roll in the field right now when it comes to the tech review space, mm-hmm. just because he, he's not afraid to do weird stuff. Right, make it interesting. Exactly. I mean, you know, if it's something as simple as throwing an, an old neon sign in the back to add a little bit of a, an outline to the yeah. back of his figure, I, I think that that's something that's really cool that hasn't been seen in many other uh, YouTube videos. You know what I loved was the look of... Th- okay, this is getting out of the cheap gear section, but uh, <laughs> Jonathan was showing off that Westcott... Uh, oh, really I love those portable things. folding softbox thing. Yeah, that is such a good idea. Like oh. literally, my favorite tools. I, I've still yet to really think about investing in some of those, but my god, they're perfect for for traveling. They're perfect for pretty much everything, and they're so bright. And the quality of the light is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been really impressed by them. And you know, what I, what I'm looking at like basically my video lighting kit is is all older stuff. Like uh, I still mm-hmm. have like a Lowell hot light kit. Yeah. But those yeah. are all really warm, so I can't, you know, mix them with daylight so much and they're hard to gel because they get so hot. And I have an LED kit that I don't really like, so I've been using it less. And so basically I'm like I've been natural light like all the time. Well, but. the two things like that I've I've sort of come across is uh Draycast lighting, which is you can find it on B&H, you can find it on Amazon. It's, you know, it's not that ultra professional, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a sky panel or whatever, but they're, you know, they're on the cheaper end. I put that in air quotes. Um, <laughs> you could probably find something really good for like a hundred bucks, but also, you know, with that, make sure to maximize the use of your lights. Um, I've been really invested in hair lights recently, just throwing a light above you, getting a little bit of a highlight on your hair, a little right. bit of shadows. I think that that look really, you know, enhances uh, what, whatever you're doing, more specifically A-roll, in my opinion. Yeah, totally. And it, compared to just what we sort of expect of like one light, like a lot of, I think the common thing, like to break it down even simpler for anybody that hasn't already done all the work of like Googling how to light yourself for a YouTube mm-hmm. video, a really common 
things that people do is they'll put one key light in the front, right? Like a big soft light yeah. on their face. That's totally fine. Like, yeah, you kind of have to do that no matter what. Sure. Yeah. Then I think what I feel gets a bit overused is then the the spotlight on the background to make the kind of glowing look. Yeah. Which like, you know, un- Unbox Therapy does it. And like, it's not that it's a bad look. Yeah. It's just that it's become it's specific. It's become like kind of more widespread than it should be. Right. Cause it's like really distinct. No, for sure. And then, yeah, like, or like really harsh rim lights, which also, I mean, all these things like can totally work, but I feel like the whole YouTube community maybe is leaning on it a little harder than they need to. And there's so many other options out there. Yeah. And I think that this is a general rule of thumb, but you know, unless you're going for a super contrasty, super punchy look, you need to make it look as natural and as soft and as subtle as possible. Totally. Because otherwise it's, it's just harsh. What's, uh, what's next for you? What are your YouTube goals for 2018? Um, you know, I, I've been, uh, I've been definitely sort of thinking about the next couple of months. Um, I am starting a job. Mm -hmm. I, I think I can talk about it now, but uh, yeah, I'm working for Marquez Brownlee. Oh, that's a very exciting job. Yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting, really fun. Um, it's also very close to where I live because I live in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his office is in uh, Kearney, New Jersey. Okay, you know it's it's not that far from me. So, right. so you can make the that's trip. also wonderful. That's great. But you know, aside from that, I I'm still very much into freelance. That's that's definitely where I make my money. So, well, and hopefully we'll see more on your channel too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I love YouTube because it's, it's a place for you to truly express all the things that you can't necessarily express in freelance and you get such immediate, you know, one-to-one information from your viewers. Yeah. So. Yeah, totally. Well, okay. What's the best place for people to find you online? Um, I would say besides YouTube, Instagram, which is havard.jpg. And uh, Twitter, which is my, my full name, Brandon J. Havard. And uh, that's, that's where you can find me. Cool. And there'll be links in the show notes, too. Thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, honestly, Thank this, you. This is great. And keep up the great work. Thanks. You too. 